You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, 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 episode 93 with Dr. Elizabeth Hamlin. We are talking about eating disorders as a communication today. Before we start, I know I haven't talked about this in a little bit, but we are having our newsletters go out. Honestly, it was monthly after I came back from leave. Now it's not exactly weekly, but it's definitely more frequent than monthly. And it's really just a great place for us all, not to hang out, but there's just so much more information in the email newsletter situation thing that I really don't know what you guys are waiting for. You can sign up on my website. There's a link in the show notes and you have the opportunity to reply back directly to me from the emails. So seriously, you guys, just hang out with me in your inbox. So first, a little bit about our conversation. The conversation about eating disorders as a communication is not new. I mean, you guys know me, or I hope you know by by now, maybe this is your first podcast episode. And so something that you'll get to know about me is that I often talk about eating disorders are really not just about the food. And they're a way to regulate emotions. They're a way to communicate. And we can understand what is potentially going on for someone via their eating disorder and use it as information to actually get to what's underneath. And so this particular conversation is exactly that. We talk about how eating disorders can possibly be a communication instead of a verbal communication, how that happens, why that happens, of course, what we can actually do about that. But specifically through an example of fluid restriction, which is not something that we've talked about on this podcast yet, And Dr. Hamlin talks a little bit about her work and understanding of fluid restriction, which is a very interesting angle. So a little bit about our guest. Elizabeth Hamlin is a medical doctor. She is a psychiatrist, psychotherapist, and psychoanalytic candidate who has basically spent her career working intensively with patients with severe eating disorders. She's worked at inpatient and residential eating disorder units at Rogers Behavioral Health somewhere in Wisconsin, you're just going to have to ask Elizabeth how the heck to pronounce that city because I won't even take a chance at it. And she's also served as the medical director of the Adult Inpatient Eating Disorder Program. She is clinical faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin and teaches and supervises psychiatry residents on eating disorders and psychotherapy. She has published psychoanalytic papers and book chapters on eating disorders with the fluid restriction that I was talking about. Presented nationally, regionally, lots of stuff with my jam, Intersection of Eating Disorders and Psychoanalysis. She's currently a psychoanalytic candidate at the Chicago Psychoanalytic Institute and has a private practice in Wisconsin. Now, without further ado, let's just listen. 
All right, Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited about this conversation. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So I think that this is hopefully not new for the listener. They know that I've been talking about this since the dawn of time in terms of my conceptualization of eating disorders coming from an analytic perspective is that eating disorders can be seen as a way of communication. And obviously there's a lot to break down in that. So most listeners, if they already know me, they know that this is my analytic perspective on eating disorders. There's so much about it that is communication. So we see the symptoms as what is the communication that's happening under the surface without words. And you know something that we've talked about, and I know that you've published on this and is something that you speak about is an example of how that's the case. It's not really only about this societal pressure for thinness, which is obviously a huge piece, but know that it's not the whole thing is through fluid restriction. So first of all, can you share a little bit about like what it is? And then we can go into a little bit more of like how you can use this to understand eating disorders better. Yeah, sure. So I think we often think about eating disorders, I think specifically thinking about anorexia as people who restrict food so they don't eat enough. And we think about them as being concerned with calories and weight Sometimes in the literature, there's even discussion of people who will drink too much water in order to sort of fill the stomach, suppress appetite. But the other thing that you can see sometimes is people who go to the other extreme and they restrict fluid. So even water, especially water. Now, if you think about this just from like a societal pressure for thinness standpoint, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Water doesn't have a lot of calories. Water has no calories, actually. (laughs) It's not really a way to change weight and shape um, is fluid restriction. Mm -hmm. And yet people do it and people show up very sick indeed to the inpatient and residential eating disorder settings. That's where I've been practicing out of. And fluid restriction, so refusing to take in enough water, um, is a very real thing. And I think it leads us to think about, well, if this isn't about weight and shape, and if this isn't about societal pressure for thinness, what is it about? Mm-hmm. Not that you can ever possibly answer this on one leg, but what is it about? <laughs> I think you walked into that. <laughs> I asked the question and I suppose I should answer it. So I mean, <laughs> if there is an answer. Yeah, I think for a lot of these patients, it's about using their bodies to communicate. Mm-hmm. and using their bodies to communicate that they're not okay, that they're really not okay. Yeah. Not just are they not eating food, but they're not even drinking water. And I think when we think about the idea of not drinking water, people often have quite strong reactions to that. So drinking and hydration is a really very sort of basic thing. We let people drink, for example, drink water in situations we wouldn't let them eat it. So for example, Anybody on the job with a water bottle, that's fine. We would think, oh, you know, good for you. You're keeping yourself hydrated. If we saw them eating, we might think a little bit like, oh, you know, it's not the time for that. Mm -hmm. So people, I think, have very strong reactions. They they tune in to the idea that somebody's not drinking to the point where perhaps they're passing out, they're really dizzy, they can't walk. It's a way of communicating some things about the person's sort of mental state and their feelings. It's so interesting because even as we're talking, so I have my water bottle right next to me and I'm drinking water and besides for recording purposes and you would hear me eating, but I wouldn't bring my sandwich and it's just totally normal. Never even thought about it that way. 
I think what's so interesting is up until now on the podcast, we've been using the idea of understanding eating disorders and eating disorder language, metaphorically speaking, to help us understand a little bit more of this communication piece and what might be driving an eating disorder or any one of the symptoms. And I wonder if we can do the same thing for this, meaning like hunger versus, I don't know, thirst or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it's actually a really interesting thing to think about because I think thirst especially has some pretty specific cultural meanings. Like it's a slang and it's a slang word in a way that hunger isn't saying that, oh, so-and-so is so thirsty, that person's a thirst trap or whatever. Mm. It's about feeling very, very desperate in a way that sort of, you know, hunger can exist at various levels. But saying that somebody's thirsty or talking about thirst is a very desperate feeling. Yeah. And I think when I've seen people who are who are doing fluid restriction, there is often this really desperate sense to be heard, to get their point across. And one of the things that I've always valued about working with people with eating disorders is that they believe so firmly in getting their truth across that they are willing to go to almost any lengths to be heard. Yeah. They don't give up. And so I think you see the same thing in people who restrict fluids. Yeah, that is true. (laughs) A very stubborn population. (laughs) A very determined population, yes. That's a better way of putting it. I like that better. (laughs) Not going about it in ways that, that ultimately serve them well, but very, very determined. They don't give up. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about if we're going to think about this as communication, obviously not verbal communication, But the way that we move through this is that it gets louder and louder and louder. And so somebody saying like, I'm not okay versus somebody showing I'm really not okay. I'm really, you know, I'm I'm not eating well or my food's really off to then I'm not drinking. This is like the loudest form. Well, not the loudest, but like even louder. I am getting to the desperate level here. People, can you please, please listen and hear me? Yeah. I mean, I, there's a phrase that I always think of that, you know, I'm sure it's arisen in other contexts, but it comes from the play Death the Salesman. And they're standing at the grave of the main character. And somebody says, look, attention must be paid. There's more to that, but attention must be paid. We cannot ignore this anymore. And of course, in the play, you know, what's happened is somebody's died for this in order to kind of get the attention paid. But I do think about it in kind of the escalating eating disorder behaviors also. Attention must be paid. You have to notice what's going on here. Maybe a little bit of an aside, and I imagine this is probably preaching to the choir for you, but, you know, one of the concerns that I have about treatments addressing eating behaviors that focus solely on the eating behaviors is that you never get to address, like, what is it that we need to pay attention to? And I think usually people then sort of shift into another way. Like I said, people are determined. They want to be heard. They want to be known. And that's kind of why I don't see a ton of utility in treatments for eating disorder that's all about food and weight and food and weight. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you say that. I actually got like a whole bunch of flack for it this week, which I am usually not used to because I think for the most part, either I just engage with people who are already on board with this at least semi-analytic perspective of treating eating disorders. You know, with the caveat, of course, there's a behavioral aspect. These people are not, you know, of course, we have to change the way that we eat. 
But I almost thought like, okay, so we're done with those people who are like, well, what's with this analytic perspective? What's with understanding the why? Like it's all about behavioral and FBT or whatever other Mm -hmm. letters they want to use. And I encountered it a couple of times this week. I was like, oh, I I guess they still exist. (laughs) But it is, you're right. It is missing the bottom of the iceberg. So you're dealing with the tip of it. That is incredibly important. Of course, it has to happen. And usually it has to happen first. But what about the rest of it? And how is that not going to translate to the next communication of attacking oneself? I don't know, whatever it is, uh, something else, substances, who knows, fill in the blank, self-harm, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so even just moment by moment, I think working with people with eating disorders, there's this instinct maybe to praise them, for example, if they do well with eating or drinking. And I I imagine you've probably seen this in practice that sometimes that can be so counterproductive. People hear the praise and they panic and they think, oh my God, my attempt to communicate has been missed. Yes. People are responding like things are okay with me. And of course, I don't actually think this is conscious. I don't think this is a conscious process, but there's sort of this unconscious, uh uh-oh, you know, somebody's responding like things are okay with me. They're absolutely not okay. And how do I get that back across? So Sometimes you see what, you know, what Freud would call the negative therapeutic reaction, where if you tell somebody they're doing good, or if somebody is doing well, there's almost an immediate response of um, kind of doubling down on the illness behaviors. Yeah. I mean, it definitely happens very often. I mean, I'm sure there's a number of reasons, unconscious and conscious, why, you know, people get to a point where they're, mm-hmm. you know, symptoms have abated, but then they just sort of go back a couple of months later in and out. Sadly, it's the case too often. But yeah, I mean, it's this huge dilemma where people are, they're not engaging in their eating disorder actively. And that is the time where they feel so terrible. And everybody else around them is like, oh, you're recovered. Go back to school. Go back to work. We're good. Stop therapy. You know, all that. And they're like sort of drowning, which, you know, because now they're actually not using their symptoms to help themselves. And so they're feeling everything from before and they still, and they have no way to deal with it. So it's even worse in a way, if you look at it that way. Well, I think especially when, when they don't have people to hear them, you know, so when therapists have said, okay, well, you're eating, your weight restored, let's, you know, I's are dotted, T's across, let's move on. I think then people feel quite betrayed, actually. Mm. they've been really, they've sort of bought into this behavioral piece. They've made the behavioral changes. And often that people will verbalize that this is a thing that they do fear coming to pass, that if they eat, people will leave. They won't be there to help. You know, I think with the inpatients and residential patients, sometimes I will do almost a reverse pep talk. Um, (laughs) Sort of saying, what's a reverse pep talk? The reverse pep talk is, you know, I know you're not okay. Mm -hmm. So even if it's the response to somebody making the behavioral change, instead of saying something like, yay, you could do it. Good for you. You could do it. Good for you. It's almost Mm -hmm. like, okay, you've done this and I know you're still not okay. And you know, Mm -hmm. you're still not okay. And we're not done yet. And having eaten this doesn't mean that we're done working together because we both know that you're not okay. And so I do find that actually fairly helpful. People seem to respond to it. Yeah. Well, it kind of mitigates some of the anxiety. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you could also insert like whatever you want to say, the praise, even for example, and then check in and be like, well, how did you hear mm-hmm. that? And hopefully they say not well, but I guess we can't necessarily rely, rely on that. The whole yeah. issue is circling back to the beginning, but this is a communication means that words have failed and that verbal communication is not a thing that feels quite possible. But even on that, like, how did they come to be? that something that we ideally would communicate via words, at least for the most part, ends being a communication through symptoms. How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think, very much a million-dollar question. I think it's probably, (laughs) you know, it's probably a question with a lot of answers. Yeah, that's for sure. I think sometimes patients have the experience of having tried to use words and not been heard. So if they've tried to say, I'm not okay, and somebody says, oh, no, honey, you're doing fine. That's maybe like a very benign scenario. Sometimes if there's trauma, people have tried to use words and, you know, not just been the, okay, honey, it's fine, but maybe a much more rejecting response. I think sometimes people are responding to, well, I mean, if they grow up in an environment where words don't necessarily seem to have a lot of correlation with reality. So everybody says they're fine, but no one is, everyone is clearly not fine. Mm -hmm. You know, people grow up kind of not, not quite trusting the idea that words and reality map onto each other in any consistent way. Yeah. You know what I'm thinking? Succession. Have you watched it? I have not actually. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm probably like the person on the planet who has not, but the one person on the planet, but I will trust you that it (laughs) matches up there. Yeah, I mean, but we think about any dysfunctional family, a lot of the dysfunction is going to be without direct communication. And you're going to have to hide certain things and not trust that somebody will hear them or, you know, has your best interest in it. You know, it's there's so much of this that, that revolves around trust. And if someone has broken your trust, especially as a kid, then you cannot rely on them. Why would you put yourself out there and say what you need? Yeah, I mean, I think there's almost this very sort of disorganized, like I'm maybe thinking of the book Alice in Wonderland where there's Humpty Dumpty Mm. and Humpty Dumpty has this attitude towards words of, you know, I make them mean what I want them to mean. I take them and I change them into the meaning I want them to have. And I think sometimes people do grow up in those kinds of environments where, the relationship between what anybody says and what anybody does is pretty tenuous. And in that case, again, like language is not a means of communicating anything. And I guess, you know, for eating disorders, the other thing that I think about is people who have had a lot of strange or emotionally invested interactions with their bodies, especially in childhood. So certainly people who have been physically or sexually traumatized have a very different relationship with their bodies. As well as kids with chronic illness, especially mm-hmm. chronic illness, severe allergies. Yes, severe allergies is a big one. People don't realize that enough. Severe allergies, diabetes that's diagnosed as a child, that can be a pretty terrifying experience. I mean, many kids grow up and do fine. And some kids grow up and think, gosh, if I put something into my body, it may well kill me. Kind of the same with severe allergies. Gosh, if I put something into my body, I'm really going to suffer. And it becomes hard to have a very trusting relationship with the body. And so then in addition to like language, maybe not being the best, 
I think people end up feeling a little bit at war with their bodies or a little bit betrayed by their bodies. So if somebody perhaps feels betrayed by their body or feels at war with, they would maybe not consciously, but then enter into some sort of like fight, like I'm going to attack you sort of thing. Yeah, I think a lot of times when you see people with very severe eating disorders, you know, often they'll tell you that they're not angry people. They are not angry people. They do not want to be angry people. They are very uncomfortable with the idea of being angry people. And of course, all the all the anger is is directed at the body. That feels okay. But the idea of being angry at literally anyone else is not okay at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm smiling because of course, like I'm not an angry person ever. I would never even know what that feels like. I don't know what you're talking about. I never feel angry. I don't feel angry even right now. Like, huh, is that so? Okay, well, maybe our goal is to get you to feel some anger. (laughs) Well, I think the number of times I've sort of um, prematurely told someone that I experienced them as quite angry. And it's very offensive, very extremely offensive. And I say, well, gosh, like, look what you're doing to yourself. How can you not be angry? Oh, no, 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 I'm not angry. How could you say that? Yeah, ironically, angry at you. (laughs) (laughs) People can kind of tie themselves in knots, you know, trying to communicate being angry at me while not being angry. Of course. (laughs) But then often, you know, but often then the communication goes back on the body. Yeah. Um, Oh, no, 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 I'm not angry at you. I'm just going to restrict more. I'm not angry at you. I'm just going to refuse fluids. I'm not angry at you. I'm just going to, you know, pound, you know, take my nails and scratch or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, when we think, especially as I think you said, like the communicative aspect of things intensifies, it's almost often, it's often sort of more and more rage at the body, you know, the more eating disorder symptoms you see, including fluid restriction, which is pretty distressing and actually leads much easier, much um, more quickly to kind of bad physical consequences than food restriction does. I mean, once, if you're restricting fluid, you get very, very dizzy. It feels awful. People often fall down and they get to that point of really being at war with the body much more quickly than the kind of classic restricting anorexic. Yeah. Well, so let's think about this a little bit more broadly. I think that there are so many different directions to go in, but you had mentioned something about if let's say somebody experiences some sort of physical or sexual trauma, it, it makes maybe linear, more linear sense. But if somebody grows up in the environment that communication is basically not valued, they're taught from young age, we will not hear you in some way, shape or form or words don't matter because they don't hold truth or any one of those messages. Mm -hmm. How does that then connect with attacking the body via an eating disorder? Like why an eating disorder? So I think when people are in an environment where for whatever reason, words aren't there, you can't trust them. They're just not there. People turn to what they have. And I think one of the first things that they have is, is their bodies. And one of the first kind of ways that you can control your body is with eating and drinking. I think, again, kind of bringing bringing it back to Freud, Freud talked about the basis for all relationships is the prototype is is oral. I will take it in Mm -hmm. or I will spit it out. You know, you can do a bunch with that. I will take it in or I won't take it in. I will take it in and then spit it out. I will take it in and hold it and not get rid of it. So a lot of 
very basic things happen based on the sort of prototype of the idea of eating or not eating. And so it's a really sort of early way that people engage with the world. It's the first way that people engage with the world, um, you could argue. So it's a place that people can go when they can't rely on words. They can certainly communicate through their bodies and eating and drinking even before kind of moving to the idea of toilet training that Freud was very focused on later on. Yes, he was definitely preoccupied <laughs> with that. He was rather. <laughs> so eating and drinking is like the even more basic one. What goes into the mouth? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking about it for babies that are pre-verbals, they don't have the ability to symbolize or use their words. Their method of communication in some way is oral, like eating, drinking. I guess there is also crying. But if we're thinking about we're not using language because they yet haven't yet developed language, then this is reverting back to that early stage. And what's the oral stage? I guess if we're thinking Freudian, eating, drinking, that's basically it. Mm-hmm. Eating, drinking, all the things that go with it, sort of sucking, swallowing, keeping things down rather than vomiting. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of the early child analysts liked looking or at um, babies who ruminated. So who did a lot of kind of the regurgitating and then swallowing or were often hospitalized, institutionalized, completely socially deprived. And this is how they would engage with the environment because you know, they didn't have the early relationships that you could expect to get something consistently from someone else. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. I guess I'm trying to think about how we can think about this particular piece, meaning why the eating disorder, specifically with the communication, because we have been talking about how the eating disorder or really enter anything else as a communication of what can't or will not be said. And I wonder if there is you know, communication obviously has a lot to do with relationships. I don't know. I'm just shooting around here in the dark. I wonder if there's anything about the communication piece that we can understand with the eating disorders and not something else more here. Well, I think thinking about that, I guess you'll let me know if this is what you're thinking about. So thinking about Freud's piece about sort of taking things in or spitting them out beyond built on that, thinking about the emotional communication in early life is that the child has all these things that they can't quite cope with, these like really strong emotions that don't really make any sense. And what the parent's job is to recognize the emotion, process it kind of for the child, and then help them understand it. Now, ultimately, as language comes, it's name it. You know, it's name it, and this is what you do with it. But even before that, the idea that if you had a baby who was crying, you would kind of pick up the baby, you would sort of think about, well, what is it that is going wrong with this baby? You would probably think about what the experience was like. And then you would sort of say something to the baby like, oh, you know, looks like you're hungry, you might need to be fed. And so there's this whole process of the child not being able to cope with emotion, the parent being able to kind of figure out what the emotion is, and then giving it back to the child in a way that they can cope. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, it's very similar to sort of eating and not eating, kind of this idea that I'm offering this to you, you kind of digest it a little bit for me, and then you give it back so that I can eat it. And I think for a lot of the eating disorder patients, this hasn't really happened very much. They don't have the experience of especially giving a verbal emotion to some, verbally giving an emotion to somebody and having them kind of hold it and process it and give it back 
in a way that feels okay. Yeah. Or, or at all, period, you know, or at all. Yeah. I'm thinking about the way that we've been talking about this and that it's sort of an indication, maybe not about everybody, but at least in these cases where if we're shedding light on say, this is simplistic, but the origins of the eating disorder that has to do with really early stuff. I mean, if we're talking about pre-verbal, that's really, really early. And I guess what it's making me think is that if it's so early, there's so many early childhood experiences that are contributing to the eating disorder that again, sort of further solidifies this idea that we have to go back and fix is a terrible word here, but like at least explore where these pieces are coming from address that is a lot more neutral, better word, because these early childhood experiences clearly are so significant. I think that they're significant and they're important, but rarely have I seen a case in which that's all there is, right? Because we often don't see people having eating disorders when they're, you know, three and four years old, when a lot of this is going on. I think it's, you know, it's sort of, it, it lays some groundwork for conditions to be right. You know, it's like the mm. the weather, uh, the thunderstorm watch versus the thunderstorm morning. You have sort of conditions that are right here for an eating disorder. Mm. Okay, I hear you saying. Whether there's going to be an eating disorder or not, like usually it's a little bit later. So sort of either something hits or something doesn't hit. And I think we can't assume that that event that happens in adolescence, maybe I think there's a mistake in assuming that's the only event of significance, which I think is where our field errs. That you know they kind of veer towards the idea of like, oh, you know, you had peer pressure when you were 13, that explains it all. Of course, you know that doesn't make sense. So I think we think about that, but then we also think about the earlier stuff. Well, what was going on that made conditions favorable? That mm-hmm. peer pressure when you were 13 went this way and, and didn't go another way. So you're saying it's I have a, all of it. Yeah. I mean, I have Mm -hmm. a lot of people who aren't analytic or psychodynamic sometimes will say like, well, I don't want to go back and blame my parents for everything they did the best they could. (laughs) And I guess I I want to be for every time I heard that. (laughs) Yeah. I want to be clear that like, that's not really the intention either. And usually there's not sort of one single event that was like, oh, this is the make or break. Right. You know, a lot of conditions had to come together for people to get where they are. But it, it, I think it ultimately is very respectful of them to acknowledge all the conditions that got them where they are. Right. And even as we're talking, if we're talking about like, oh, this could be connected with this because an insert one, maybe two answers, it's reductionist. It is probably not even accurate because like you're saying, there's so many different pieces starting from an early age, but then going on through the lifetime, especially adolescence, but even further, depending on how old a person is. Yeah, even older too. Yes, yes. That all of these pieces contribute to the development and the maintenance of an eating disorder to say, oh, it's because of your mom is like not true because there are lots and lots of different pieces that contribute. I mean, sort of rare cases, yes, probably, but like mostly no, it's a combination, but it it's important and it's respectful yes. to address all the pieces. I mean, it, it's just, it doesn't seem as thorough to overlook half of it in favor of the other half, I guess. 
Yeah. And also something that's not entirely related, but just because you're mentioning what people say, you know, I don't want to blame my parents for this. And something that often I say is that this is not really about attributing blame because ultimately you have to take responsibility for how your life yeah. has turned. And so we can try to understand the context for whatever it is that you're struggling with, your eating disorder, et cetera. But at the end of the day, this is about owning what your life is right now and taking responsibility and doing the work yourself. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think if you had a time machine and could go back and you know have things <laughs> done differently, maybe the idea of blame would make sense. But I think it really is identifying all the pieces and experiences as well as your reactions to those experiences and your own mm -hmm. personal thoughts and feelings about those experiences. Mm -hmm. So identifying all these pieces that have gotten the patient to where they are and trying to hear them, I think, coming back to the communicative piece, because I think actually so often people are trying to, to communicate some of these old pieces and helping them put what it is they're communicating in words and responding to it in words, responding to it emotionally. I think that's ultimately what helps people. Yeah. So yeah, in addition to the behavioral piece, obviously. Yes. Yes, of course. I do want to make sure that that part is heard too, because we're often accused of not thinking about the actual food at all ever, which of course is not accurate. Taking all of this information as much as, it, as we possibly can, what can somebody who's listening right now actually do about this? And we can sort of add to that, although this is not the entire question, how can therapy help? But like more mm -hmm. so in general, what is, okay, so, so say this is my story. And now what? So say that you are somebody with an eating disorder and this is your story. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's, it's a hard question. I think it certainly depends on where somebody is in either illness or recovery mm -hmm. in terms of what they need. That's for sure. And I think just to reiterate what you were saying before, if somebody is like super symptomatic, especially somebody who is in higher level of care or needs higher level of care, like, yes, I'll speak for myself. I am an advocate to get the immediate help that somebody needs and work on symptom reduction and, you know, increasing food if that's a thing that they need to do, addressing the purging or any part of the eating disorder. That is something that has to happen first. And it's like we could sprinkle some of this in, but of course, that is most immediate and most important to begin with? I mean, I think beyond that, I would, you know, I will give perhaps a direct pep talk of don't mm -hmm. give up now. You know, <laughs> you've gone through so much of your life trying to communicate whatever this feeling is. It can happen. Mm -hmm. And so hopefully you have a therapist who can help you translate a little bit. What is this message that you're trying to send? You know, I do think that sometimes things like journaling art can be helpful for trying to identify some of the underlying feelings, but mostly trying to translate these feelings about the body into language mm -hmm. as much as someone can and to have somebody there who can receive them. You know, the piece where journaling, I think, doesn't work super well is that it is a one-way street. Yes. And I think truly to have a good response you need somebody to hear you and to kind of feel with you not you know not just an empty hearing but to really feel with you what it is that you're trying to convey mm -hmm. especially you know circling back to what we had mentioned before if a lot of this has to do with 
somebody not being heard and understanding that language is insufficient, which means that they have to resort to their eating disorder or other symptoms to communicate, then the opposite is true. That learning that somebody would listen when you hear your words is going to be the most powerful antidote. Yeah. And I think there's, there's some, there's obviously really good stuff with that. There's also a bit of sadness, a lot of sadness, because no matter how much somebody can hear you now, they weren't there to hear you. Yeah. And they can't have been there to hear you then. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of mourning with that of kind of letting go and acknowledging that, that, that things didn't work the way they should have done. Yes. Um, the, the way that you wish they had, that things can be better, but they can never go backwards in time. Yeah. The mourning process is such a big piece. I mean, working toward an acceptance of what things were and that uh, they possibly change. I mean, it's in the past and we wish it was different, but it wasn't. Yeah, very deeply. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this, to help us understand a little bit more about, I mean, like even just the fluid restriction is is a completely new idea to a lot of us. So thank you for joining us. Before I let you go, can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Sure. So thank, first of all, thank you again for having me. This is such a, I mean, it's a really interesting subject to talk about. And it's a subject that's very, very important to me that I feel very strongly about. In terms of finding me physically, I am in the suburbs of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. (laughs) I can be found. I have a web presence. My website is www.dr for doctor, Elizabeth, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H, Hamlin, H-A-M-L-I-N dot com. And that has more information about my practice, how to set up an appointment. Or if you want to reach out to me via email, you can do that too from the website. Cool. If somebody wants to read a little bit more about some of your published work, where can they find that? Is that on the website? Is that on? Uh, Gosh, you know, it's a really good question. It's not right now on the website. My publications are in journals that are pretty, like, since they're relatively recent, I don't think they want me to access the articles and just put them on my website. I hear that. So if someone were to Google your name, would some of the articles come up? I don't think the full copies would, unfortunately, unless they were subscribers. I do have a book chapter on fluid restriction in a textbook on eating disorders published by Springer, which I think is probably more accessible than than the journal articles might. Okay. Well, if someone does have a subscription, where can they find some of the publications? Asking for a friend. Psychoanalytic Psychology and um, the British Journal of Psychotherapy. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you very much. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.